This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. And we're here to talk today um, just a little bit about the right to life and the modern pro-life movement and how that can be related to Dr. King and his legacy and the civil rights movement. The pro-life movement shares so much with Dr. King's criticisms of oppressive laws and criticisms of apathy and his push for nonviolence and his focus on protecting the innocent. So we're going to talk today about what exactly makes the right to life a civil right and examine some of the social structures and attitudes that permit and encourage abortion in our society, um, along with other life issues such as the death penalty and euthanasia. Um, especially as the annual March for Life approaches on Monday to commemorate the 38th anniversary of um, the Supreme Court decision Roe versus Wade, we're going to talk about some of the successes and struggles of the young pro-life movement, of which we're all a part of and compare this with what was faced by young people who so definitively shaped the civil rights movement just a few decades ago. So I wanna just start off by talking a little bit about what's an all too common theme in world history and in the history of our own country. Um, this process by which the people in charge kind of set boundaries and determine who counts as being fully a member of society and fully human and by that rationale are able to kind of limit um, a person's human rights and human dignity and say that they're not worthy to live and to flourish fully in a society. So for example, um, just think about the practice of slavery. And slavery only makes sense if you think that the person that you're enslaving is somehow less human and less entitled to the dignity and the quality of life that you have. Think also of the Holocaust, when groups of people were so arbitrarily decided um, that they were genetically less pure and less human, and therefore so easily disposed of. Um, you can think also of women, and how they so relatively recently, we got the right to vote in our own country and around the world, how women are still fighting for equality and respect and dignity in their families, in their workplaces, and in schools. And in the context of Martin Luther King, think also of this process of segregation, where people were so blatantly told that you're not fully a member of our society and you don't deserve the same treatment based solely on their skin color. So our world has made significant strides in recognizing the humanity of groups that were formerly oppressed. Um, but we're here today to argue that this process isn't done yet and that our American society is still refusing to recognize the humanity of some groups, specifically those on death row and the terminally ill, and especially, as we're going to talk about today, the unborn. Martin Luther King's ideals and what we're going to talk about today can be applied to all kinds of life issues. Um, we're going to focus specifically today on abortion because, mainly because of the timeliness of it, and that in a few days, our group will be going down to Washington, D.C. to join with hundreds of thousands of other people um, to march and to peacefully protest the Supreme Court decision that happened 38 years ago. 
So, in the case of abortion, um, it's clear that the thousands of pre-born children who are aborted every day are directly suffering from this blatant denial of human rights. Um, our society, as expressed here um, by Justice Blackman in the majority opinion um, of the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision, he says, in short, the unborn have never been recognized in the law as persons in the whole sense. But it's also not just the preborn who are suffering from this dehumanizing. Um, the practice of abortion also dehumanizes the women and the men who feel stuck by an unplanned pregnancy by preventing them from flourishing in society and preventing them from feeling like they're fully able to be a part of, um, they're fully able to make a choice in being a full and active member of society. So if we think about the rhetoric that's used so often by saying that abortion is a woman's choice, um, we're actually isolating the women and we're leaving them, we're taking society out of the decision-making process and, and denying them um, the support that they might receive as a full member of society. And also the practice of, the fact that so many abortion clinics are located in low-income communities indicates that it's easier for us as society to just kind of put an abortion clinic somewhere um, instead of addressing the root causes as to why low-income families so often feel stuck by an unplanned pregnancy. It's easier to put a clinic in a neighborhood than try and fix the welfare system or provide affordable housing, um, or even giving just expectant mothers more rights in the workplace. So whether or not the pre-born child is deserving of these human rights has been the source of a lot of the controversy surrounding this issue. Largely because of the fact that it is a significant burden for a woman to carry a child nine months um, to term. And especially since women have only so recently gotten recognized for their inherent dignity in society, limiting abortion can seem like just one more way that society can tell women what she can and can't do with her own body. However, both science and theology will agree in that at the moment of conception, a new being is formed with a new set of human DNA that upon the right circumstances will develop into a human being that we see walking around today, a, a human being who was born separate and distinct from both his or her mother and father. So while this goal of deciding what you can and, what you can and can't do with your own body is a noble one, it's trumped in this case by a higher good, that is the fact that we can't arbitrarily decide that another person, another human being can and can't live. So it's important to this conversation to talk about where we think that these human rights and this human dignity comes from. And we've decided as a society that it doesn't come from the color of your skin, it doesn't come from the country where you were born, it doesn't come from your gender. And it seems to follow then that this human dignity isn't something that you receive based on some kind of outside factor. It can't be, it can't be given based on whether you're born or pre-born, whether you can or can't contribute economically to a society, or whether in the case of death row inmates you are innocent or guilty. So instead, all these things seem to point to this idea that there's, that what makes a human being worthy of dignity and respect and a right to life both precedes and supersedes all of these distinctions that we're so quick to make. 
and that there's something inherently dignified about being a human, um, and that one group of person, one group of people, or one person can never have the right to arbitrarily decide whether another human being can live or die. So the Civil Rights Movement and Dr. King were successful just a few decades ago because of their commitment to, to getting people to see that there was an inherent just injustice in denying people rights based on their skin color. And today the pro-life movement is attempting to do the same on behalf of the unborn and other groups whose human dignity has not been respected. So in the rest of this presentation, we're going to demonstrate that the modern pro-life movement is indeed rooted in the same principles that the civil rights movement was, and that it's one more step in our society towards achieving equal justice for all. So now Rachel's going to talk a little bit about the values of Martin. I'm just going to continue where Lauren left off. Because we see similarities in the types of oppression that groups have experienced throughout all of history, we see the movements that aspire to end the injustice as founded on similar principles. Martin Luther King Jr.'s idea of the Civil Rights Movement is founded on four fundamental values, in fact. These four themes are evident in his speeches and letters. They are criticism of unjust social structures, protecting the innocent, criticism of apathy, and nonviolent demonstration. Um, the first value that is prevalent in his speeches and writing is criticism of unjust social structures. In his many letters and speeches, Martin Luther King Jr. certainly criticized oppressive laws, such as laws that allowed for segregation in public places. However, he focused his efforts on addressing not only the laws, the oppressive laws, um, that allowed for such segregation, but also the root of the problem, which is the oppressive social attitudes and mentalities that allowed for the continuation of this prejudice. Um, he found it problematic that the fact that an oppressive mentality was a prevalent norm of the America of his time, because it allowed for continual undermining of one's inherent human dignity, um, both in attitude and in action. In other words, this oppressive attitude was solidified by the fact that oppressive laws not only deny African-Americans the opportunity to play a part in contributing to the betterment of society, but also the fact that these laws deny them the opportunity to even be considered as members of that society at all. Um, there's a similarity in the social structure of American society before the civil rights movement and modern society today that allows for abortion and things like the death penalty to occur. Um, modern rhetoric frames the issue as a right of personal autonomy, privacy, or choice, as Lauren said. Um, in other words, the issue is framed as allowing women the right to do as they please with their body. However, this denies the fetus the potential to both contribute to and be considered a member of the human community as a whole. Um, laws that permit abortion and the mindsets of seeing abortion merely as a woman's choice are unjust because they, and they violate this inherent human dignity. Um, which undermines King's conception of the beloved community, a holistic um, community of persons, um, regardless of their race, of their economic standing, um, and status in society. Um, um, when <coughs> unjust laws allow for things, 
for these kinds of attitudes to become so entrenched in, in the human mentality and the mentality of society, they allow for oppression and exclusion based on arbitrary titles like black and white, or pre-born and infant, as previously mentioned, um, and deny everyone the right to this inherent human dignity, to, to the preservation of that dignity. Um, the second value that is prevalent in Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches and writings is protection of the innocent. Um, although King was undeniably a victim of the oppression and injustice that he was fighting, he still advocated for African Americans who weren't afforded the same opportunities as he himself was. He spoke on behalf of these, those still entrenched in the mindset that um, the right to preserve, or who, he spoke on behalf of those who were victimized by the fact that, um, by, by this mindset of the right to preservation of human dignity is a privilege rather than a right. Um, so the way that Martin Luther King Jr. kind of structured his whole civil rights movement was um, certainly action in the public arena, but also providing a voice for those who were unable to have one on their own in the public arena. And that's um, very similar to the way that the pro-life movement is structured today providing a voice for those who don't have one in today's society. Um, a relevant quote that Martin Luther King Jr. himself had in a letter to Birmingham, from the Birmingham jail is, now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. This demonstrates Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, dedication to the preservation of this human dignity for all. The third value that um, shows up in Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches, writings, um, and political action is criticism of apathy. Um, generally, he expresses a feeling of frustration with the white moderate, as he puts it, um, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. So essentially, he has a problem with these people who, um, these moderate people who claim to attest to the general fact that injustice in society is inherently wrong, but fail to do anything about that profession that they have. Um, this certainly applies to the pro-life movement also, where generally people tend to, tend to um, not make definitive statements on the matter and say it is um, up to the woman herself. Um, or even just saying abortion is wrong, but it is, it is not my place to say that in the public arena. Um, King would criticize this apathy because it, it is attesting to the truth. However, it is not doing anything to promote the truth. Um, the fourth and final value of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, that is important to his writings in political action is nonviolent demonstration. This, in and of itself, has four major um, subheadings. So essentially, um, the first step to nonviolent demonstration, as Martin Luther King Jr. saw it, was examination of the evidence. In other words, the first step to combating injustice is to logically determine that injustice is actually occurring. Um, and this involves things like examining statistics and analyzing trends. Um, as it applies to the pro-life movement, 19 0.6% of pregnancies end in abortion in modern society. Um, that translates in 2008 alone to 1.21 million abortions um, in one year alone. Um, many of these abortions hap 
occur in areas um, where the population is generally impoverished or even minority um, populations. And as Lauren said, there's evidence that both women and men have had mental and physical negative effects from their abortion, um, psychological issues. Um, the second step to nonviolent demonstration as Martin Luther King Jr. saw it was negotiation. This requires talking to people who have differing opinions um, with a focus on transformation um, and drawing people into acceptance of the truth. So this is interesting the way that Martin Luther King Jr. frames it because it doesn't require relinquishing um, one's claim to, to understanding the truth, to, to knowing the truth. However, it does require open lines of communication and conversation, which is crucial because if you're not willing to discuss your views, how can you expect to initiate this transformation of mind? Um, the third kind of criteria that King lists as essential to nonviolent demonstration <coughs> is personal purification. Um, this involves things like prayer and self-reflection as a way to constant, constantly center yourself in your mission. This is um, crucial, significant, because it involves a renewal not only of your knowledge and understanding of the cause and solution, but also your dedication, renewal of investment to that cause and solution that you're proposing. And the fourth and final uh, criteria that King lists as essential to nonviolent demonstration, as he sees it, is direct action. Um, he obviously um, advocated for things like protests, peaceful protests, um, I should mention, and, and all the previous things that we mentioned, like criticism of apathy. Um, Villanovans for Life as a group has done this in our work at crisis pregnancy centers in organizing vigils um, in preventing sidewalk counseling and um, kind of in our large, so we do things on campus, but we also do things in the context of the larger community, which involves advocating to Congress uh, men and women about our cause and sending students every year to the March for Life. Um, it is not insignificant to note the fact that um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s model of nonviolence can be seen as a challenge and a goal for the pro-life movement to live up to. Historically, um, the pro-life movement, as well as the early civil rights movement, has had um, some violent um, past and in, in, in that um, it hasn't always been successful to, to adhering to the nonviolent model. Um, but however, Martin Luther King Jr. provides a good model for work on the transformation of consciousness. Um, instead of being characterized by anger or demonization of the opposite standpoint, it is important to engage in the beloved community and open communication as Martin Luther King Jr. saw it. Um, as far as the March for Life, Christine is going to continue talking about that. I'm Christine, and I'm going to be uh, discussing the March for Life and the similarities um, between our marches on Washington and the civil rights marches on Washington. Um, uh, just for a little bit of background, the March for Life it, um, is every year on January 22nd, which is the anniversary of Roe vs. Wade, the decision that legalized abortion. Um, and 
Um, this year, it's not exactly on January 22nd because it falls on a weekend, and uh, Congress is not in session on weekends, so the whole point of marching on Washington is kind of lost if no one's there to watch you. So we, it is on, a, it is on the Monday after the weekend begins this year. And this is the 38th annual March for Life. And last year, there were over 300,000 people. Estimations were as high as 500,000. And um, the, it, that's an amazing amount of growth. Because the first March in 1974, which is the year directly the year after the um, decision was passed, it started with 20,000 people. So in, in 37 years, it has grown from 20,000 to 300,000. That's just an incredible amount of growth. And the really beautiful thing about the March for Life is that over half of the marchers are under the age of 30. So they're young people just like us. And it's really inspiring to see all of the young people that are involved in this cause. And that ties back to the marches on Washington that the Civil Rights Movement led because most of the young, most of the people involved in the, in the Civil Rights Movement were also young people just like us, and they were fighting for human dignity just like we are. Um, there is disappointingly little media coverage of the March for Life, and um, EWHN, the Catholic television network, is pretty much the only one that really completely covers it. It's occasionally mentioned on other on the on the other news sites. I know that last year, um, or a couple years ago, I saw it mentioned on CNN, and they said something like. Oh yeah, the there's about the same amount of, of pro-lifers and pro-choice people here. That there's really not that many of either, but there's about the same. Well, I was there. There was like a dozen pro-choice people and like I said, 300,000 pro-life people. So the media definitely puts their own spin on it. And um, I know that last year, I was, when I was saw it on Fox News, they said to me like, "Wow, people actually march? Who knew? It's been going on for 37 years and people still haven't caught on." So. Um, it's just, it's really sad that the our society is so attuned to just ignoring um, the dignity of, of, of the unborn that they're just not paying attention to this at all. Um, now, despite the, uh, the similarities, as the others have discussed, between the civil rights movement and ours, uh, we do know that there are definitely differences. The primary one being the amount of violence that is, um, ex is, uh, placed upon the actual protesters. Um, nowadays, we know that if we go to the march, we're not going to be abused by the police, we're not going to be thrown in jail. They're going to respect our right to, to free assembly, our right to protest. And in the civil rights movement, that was definitely not respected, as we all know. They were consistently thrown into jail and constantly beaten and abused. And um, we as a group know that we have the civil rights movement to to thank for that. We can protest today because they protest then, and they have set the precedent for this. Um, and then the other difference is that um, we are not protesting for ourselves. We are protesting for those who have no voice. Um, and then the last major difference, as was discussed before, Martin Luther King really, really criticized apathy and one of the major groups that he criticized was religious institutions because they were not helping him at all. And we are blessed to have religious institutions on our side. The Catholic Church is one of the most outspoken pro-life um, advocates out there, and many other religions are as well. 
and it's really great that we have them on our side and we know that Martin Luther King would be extremely excited about having them on our side. Um, then uh, despite all these differences, um, as established, we do draw parallels, but more than anything, we draw inspiration from their cause. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And injustice, no matter where it is, whether it takes place in clinics, hospitals, or on death row, is injustice. And the fact remains that we can't allow injustice to continue. This concludes our presentation. Um, we're going to open the floor for questions. I'd like to invite my fellow presenters, Blaze, Lauren, and Rachel, up to answer questions. <coughs> Do we have any questions? So many women um, feel as though they're making a choice when they are in, an, in a situation of an unplanned pregnancy that they have a choice um, to choose abortion. But in actuality, um, our society is set up in such a way that we push a lot of women towards abortion by not providing the necessary um, structures and just kind of resources to help women in these situations. And I think that there are. Uh resources out there. There are crisis pregnancy centers that uh, don't advocate for abortion that have uh, or provide other options uh, other than abortion. Um, the crisis pregnancy center that Villanueans for Life works with, um, which is right down the road in Brimmar, they um, provide some uh, tutoring support, they provide some financial support, they provide um, baby clothing, they provide parenting classes, they provide um, counseling. Um, they provide a whole lot of uh, things for women, and they, um, they even uh, they advocate for some adoption agencies as well, I believe. So there are a lot of different options out there that can really open up uh, your options as you, know, you need them. Um, what about like the issue of rape with um, abortions? Like, shouldn't she have the choice to abort a baby after an unholy action or something like that? Well, you know, it's a very emotionally charged uh, instance of the issue of abortion there. You know, ra rape, it's a very horrible thing. It's a very horrible act. And uh, in any, you know, even so, the same approach still applies. The same 
values are still present that a child is still you know or an unborn baby is still a human being it still has that inherent dignity and it has a right to life the um if you remember lauren discussed how human dignity is present regardless of race of um, any of those things that she discussed but it also is regardless of who your parents are and what your parents did you have human dignity no matter even if your parents are in jail, even if your parents killed someone, even if your parents raped someone. So the child should not have to suffer just because his father did something terrible to his mother or her. And even talking about it in this context of saying when a woman gets raped, she needs to have the right to choose an abortion, it neglects kind of the baseline issue there as to why women are getting raped. And it takes the focus off of that. And if we are talking about promoting this culture of life, this culture um, where life's respected at all stages, including the preborn, including the women, um, then down the road, eventually, if this consciousness change is happening, then rape will be as unspeakable as we see abortion being. Even to parallel on um, the last question regarding empowerment, you know if you're going to, you know, you've been raped and you feel like, you know, you've been taken down from a position of power and you were just put in a very helpless and victimizing position, um, it, it just doesn't make sense to then victimize an unborn child further. That um, it's, a, it's the two wrongs don't make a right um, argument there. Um, I don't know. I missed this before, but I had heard that um, a relative of Dr. Martin Luther King was involved in the polygamy. Mm -hmm. I wonder if yes. you could talk about um, that. Dr. Alveda King is Martin Luther King's niece. Um, she was actually here on campus last year, I believe, which was really great. She was here for a talk, and we actually, as a group, got to have lunch with her, which was um, absolutely inspiring. But her story is, she's Martin Luther King's niece, um, and she experienced two abortions. One of them um, she didn't consent to. Her doctor just performed the abortion without even telling her that's what he was doing. And the other one um, she did consent to. And she has gone through um, just kind of a change of heart, um, which is it's not uncommon for women. It just so happens that hers is a more outspoken, a more nationally kind of recognized story. But she is one of the biggest pro-life speakers now. She's often at the march speaking. And she does a lot, she relates um, her uncle's mission of pro-life, or of um, civil rights, and just his movement of nonviolence to the pro-life movement as well. Any other questions? You've mentioned the media, um, and the media's take on the March for Life. Why do you think the media takes, uh, the media and American culture as a whole, essentially takes such a negative view choose to ignore uh, pushes for human rights until it's on such a big stage? You know, I think it, it does take a pretty interesting look at it when it's big news. Like when you see, um, like in the healthcare bill, I saw a lot of news articles about um, abortion and how it was, like a, it was a central issue in the, uh, the healthcare bill that they were trying to pass. But um, when it comes to things like the March for Life and um, you know day-to-day -day vigils and things like that, 
Uh, one, it's been around for, we've been doing it for, you know, 38 years now. Two, um, you know, it goes back to what um, I think you mentioned, how that, uh, you know, we're really advocating for someone other than ourselves. You know, if, if it was us who were really, who had the infringement upon our human dignity, upon our human rights, then, you know, I think it would be a different story. There would be um, more charisma in that sense. But, you know, we're advocating for someone who's not even ourselves. And I think there's a little bit of a disconnect there when it comes to... Um, and I think also Martin Luther King um, and the Civil Rights Movement, the violations of human dignity were a lot easier to see. Um, anyone walking around can see that black people had to sit in the back of the bus. And there were two schools. There was the white school and there was the black school. And the violence that we're opposing is not happening on street corners. It's not happening um, in a place where the general public can see it. It's happening behind these closed doors of clinics. It's happening in prison cells on death row. It's happening in hospitals. Um, it's a lot easier for the public to ignore it. And anytime we're talking about social change, um, whether this is women's rights, whether it's slavery, everything has to come from both the top down, talking about politics, and from the bottom up, talking about changing individual conscious consciousness and just kind of getting the issue at the forefront of people's minds. So we can march and march all we want, but if Roe versus Wade is overturned tomorrow and people are still thinking like they are today, not much is going to change. So that's where, where a lot of the things that we as a group do and what the pro-life movement does, it's you have to both be involved with the advocacy efforts and marching on Washington and writing letters and signing petitions, but you also have to be involved um, on an individual scale, like what Martin Luther King talked about with nonviolence in negotiation, that you have to be willing to change people's hearts one at a time and to be out there on the street corners, vigils on Saturday mornings, um, talking to the women who are going into the clinics and be present on a, at a one-on-one -on -one level um, before any of the top-down stuff really takes effect. Um, I think I've heard We, show, we showed a documentary last year, um, I don't know how many of you guys are present for it, it was called Mayafa 21, um, and it, t it took a look at just the origins of Planned Parenthood and how it had its roots in the eugenics movement and trying to purify um, the American race of essentially African Americans. And so what happened was a lot of these clinics were set up in lower income, um, predominantly minority communities. Whereas where they would be an easy access um, for people who are living in poverty, who are more likely to see um, an unwanted and unplanned pregnancy as a burden and something that they can't even fathom um, going through with. Because if you can't put food on the table as it is, how can you put food on the table for another child? Um, but doing that, just ta just putting placing an abortion clinic in a low-income community and saying this will fix the problem isn't looking at why people are feeling stuck to begin with. It's not looking at why families can't afford to feed their children and provide adequate education 
and housing. So it, again, it takes the focus off of the root problems. Yeah, it's, it's treating the symptom, not the cause. Um, if we want to help people to survive and to not feel the need to abort a child in order to um, continue feeding their children they already have, then we need to help them. We need to give give them a means of providing for themselves. We need to keep. We need to direct them to crisis pregnancy centers that will give them parenting lessons and give them a, a way to help their children. Uh, we don't need to. We don't need to direct them toward places that will just abort their children. <laughs> mentioned um, previously about the role of churches and how Dr. King um, criticized uh, apathy very much. Um, like it seems in our society, or at least a lot of times, uh, churches are very hesitant to say something. You don't really hear about it too much when you go to mass, and a lot of people are very afraid to, you know, whether they're going to quote unquote turn people away or become controversial, because a lot of people, I think, feel that it's a political issue. And it's not, it doesn't have its place in church. The church is, you know, separation of church and state and all those other fantastic things that are trumpeted. Um, so could you say a little bit more about like the specific role of um, religious institutions? Well, I do know that um, at the very front of the march is um, the, the big sign that they hold that's led by at least St. Charles Borromeo Seminary. Um, you know, I think that uh, a good amount of the speakers at the March for Life are religious speakers. I know the Pope um, wrote a personal letter a couple years back um, to be read, uh, specifically addressing or um, commending the youth involvement in the pro-life movement in America. Um, <clears throat> it's the same. Um, I know um, in a lot of classes this week talking about race, um, people are really hesitant to talk about race. Um, and especially white people. White people are afraid of um, bringing up race as though it's something that somebody who is not white would have forgotten. And it's just a very touchy issue that people are afraid to, afraid of controversy and afraid of bringing up um, these issues that um, need, to be, need to be discussed. And it's exactly what Martin Luther King was criticizing with the white matter. Just that people are content with kind of a superficial order instead of getting at the root causes and making um, a more fruitful peace. Um, just one more question. Um, I know that the pro-life movement is uh, kind of connected to today's question. It's very um, kind of connected to Catholicism or Christianity. Um, and there seems to be you know, the same type of people being involved in the movement. Um, I think a lot of people, uh, just because um, seeing from the media and how the movement is viewed by the public in general, um, what would you say um, the movement could do better, or do you think it's already doing a good job of including people who are of different religions, or including people who may believe in the main issue, which is the right to life, and are maybe confused or turned off by or don't agree with the sub-issues that also come with the movement. Do you think that um, the pro-life movement is doing a good job of including all types of people? I mean, there's no like official member card to the, to the pro-life movement. So, I mean, if you, you, know, you want to advocate for 
life, then you are absolutely 100% welcome to do so. I think um, naturally we just form groups, you know, in our churches, you know, there's like our life group in you know, my parish. And that's where they, the kind of grassroots movement starts is in that, in those settings, which is maybe why I think you see there's a bit of um, a disconnect between um, how we operate as a whole in, in the sense of, you know, there are plenty of um, non-Catholic pro-life people out there. There are plenty of not, not even religious but people who are pro-life. Um, but I think it starts in that kind of grouping in, in your religious setting because I think that's where a lot of the times you hear it first there. You know, you don't, because you don't hear it in the media, you don't hear it um, a lot debated in, you know, your school even. It's, it's through your religious affiliation, I think, that you are first introduced to, I know I certainly was in high school, first introduced into uh, the pro-life movement was through, you know, the church. So I think that's maybe uh, why that is. I don't think that that's necessarily how it needs to be or how it should be. I know that uh, last year at the Students for Life Conference, and that's the one with the March too, there, um, there was a group called Pro-Life for a Reason, and the group was making fun of me, and I was so excited that they were there, because um, as much as I love the fact that religious institutions um, do, like Blake said, like usually introduce people, I think that a lot of um, times when we're discussing and debating with the pro-choice people, it's not a level playing field, because we have certain beliefs like the fact that God gave us life, that they that they can just be like, well, I don't believe that. And it's nice to have people that can sit down with them and say, well, I also don't believe that. This is why I believe that it doesn't matter whether it comes from God or not, it's still a life. Um, and I was really excited that they were there to witness that fact. Um, and there also were a lot of other um, non-Catholic but still Christian, and even not, I think there were a couple of temples that I've seen, like Jewish um, groups, and um, I, lo I love that. I love that we can come together totally regardless of our other beliefs, and because it, it is it is something that yes, we believe that God gave us the right to life, but separate from all that, it would it, it's the fact that all of us can agree on this one thing. And I think the Catholic Church is kind of famous for this idea of a seamless garment. And it's present in a lot of talk of philosophy as well that it it makes no difference whether um, you're talking about abortion or the de death penalty or even issues such as poverty um, and women's rights that human dignity needs to be respected across the board and I think um, just the language being used to describe the pro-life movement is shifting um, in recent years in, in the last decade or so and it's shifting away from this like demonization of the other side and everyone who's involved in abortion is going to hell. It's not really framed in that way anymore at all. It's framed more as a human, human rights issue. If you're at the march, you see signs both that abortion kills children and also abortion hurts women. Um, that a lot of different groups are kind of seeing the damage that abortion has done on a lot of different levels and just addressing um, that from their perspective their respective disciplines. Any other questions? Mm -hmm. um, 
question about euthanasia, actually. Uh, with modern medicine and the sort of like ability to keep people alive by more and more artificial means, like how does that play into the pro-life movement? Well, the official church position, like the Catholic Church, is that um, if it's extraordinary measures, then you don't have to do it, but that they um, do not approve of you just saying, oh, well, I'm gonna, um, they're gonna suffer a lot, so I'm just gonna uh, use euthanasia. Um, and I believe extreme measures are usually things like, um, is it going to hurt you way more than it's going to help you? That kind of thing. Um, I don't know if you guys wanna add anything. Mm -hmm. It, it comes down to a point where are you postponing national or national natural death um, to a point where that's unreasonable? Are you putting a patient through a lot of expensive treatments and ventilator treatments um, and just kind of they're in a medically induced coma just for another few weeks of um, life and natural death is something that um, especially in the case of the elderly and the people who are terminally ill, that um, it's a matter of embracing that the natural death instead of trying to postpone it or artificially supplement it with. Yes. Yeah. Did that help at all? Anybody else? This is just a practical question. Is there still room on the bus Monday? Absolutely. <laughs> a little yeah. plug in for that. Uh, this Monday morning, or yeah, this Monday, in the morning at 6.45, we will be gathering to take a bus down to Washington, D.C. We're going to the March for Life. Uh, like you heard, it's 3,000 people gathered together. 300,000. 300,000 people gathered, um, marching from, we marched from uh, the mall where the, uh, where the, yeah, where the monuments are up to the Supreme Court. And it's a really, really great experience. It's very powerful, uh, especially, um, I don't know, the screen had it up there a little while ago, but if you look down um, from the hill, from um, the hill you march up to get to the Supreme Court, it's just amazing. There's just people for as far as you can see. And it's uh, just a really great experience all around. And just a note, I remember going back in high school, it was my senior year of high school, and. Um, just like there's a lot of waiting around like there's just a ton of people in the streets but it's just like it's great because everyone's really friendly talking um it's just a really like peaceful and uplifting experience and the group that i was with actually ended up talking to one of the police officers and he said that like every year the washington dc police officers sign up for um, a certain number of these big events that they know are going to happen and this police officer said that he's personally not pro-life um, and he knows a lot of a lot of his colleagues who also aren't, but he said the the March for Life is one of the first that gets filled up in terms of staff because people, even who don't agree, are uplifted just by the energy um, and impressed just by the peaceful demonstration. So I think we have about 10 spots left. So if that's something you're interested, just come up and talk to us after. Our information is also on the bottom of the handout. You can email us if you want to come, or if you want to come to meetings. Any other questions, comments? All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>
This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.